Shall not all of these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, and all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and finds, I'm sorry, founds a city to inequity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the people's labor merely for fire and nations, weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, and pour out your wrath, and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself, and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What a prophet is an idol, when its maker has shaped it a metal image. A teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation, when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much um, that we have the freedom to come to this place and worship you, God. Um, I pray that your spirit... Um, speaks to us today with what Stephen has um, for us to learn, God, and I pray that um, not only do we hear those words, but that we um, take it to heart and take the truth and um, not just leave it here at the doorstep, God, but um, we use what we learn today throughout the week. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Morning, everybody. Hope everybody had a good Fourth of July holiday. Anybody do anything? I don't know. Anybody go out of town? How many people went out of town? I did not. Myra, you didn't either. Fourth of July? We were here. Yeah. So I hope you guys had fun. Did, you, did anybody enjoy the fireworks? Who went to the fireworks here at UF Banshell? Did you enjoy the lightning? I did. What about uh, the Alachua fireworks? We go down there. Anybody go, anybody go anywhere else? St. Augustine? How was that? Did they shoot them up over the water? Oh, that's awesome. One day, beach fireworks. Awesome. <clears throat> Hope you guys are having a great morning. Um, we're going through Habakkuk. 
as Myra read for us. And uh, <clears throat> Kevin left us off in chapter two. Um, what we're gonna look at this morning is, is the theme of justice. So what I decided to do is to start off is to uh, look at, at what justice is. Uh, because it's, it's a really, I don't know, I feel like it's a really ambiguous term. So I pulled up some definitions and I did what probably most of us would do when we wanna know what something is. I Googled it. And Google showed me the first thing, uh, justice is a noun, it is just behavior or treatment, so it's using justice to define justice. I think that's kind of funny. Or it's a judge or magistrate in particular, a judge of the Supreme Court of a country or state. Not very helpful. So I dug a little bit deeper, and I went to dictionary.com. Got a little bit more thorough here. Um, and so we see justice, a noun, the maintenance or administration of what is just, again, using justice to define itself, great job, especially by the impartial adjustment of conflicting claims or the assignment of merited awards or punishments, or the administration of law, uh, a fugitive from justice, especially, the establishment or determination of rights according to the rules of law, equity, a system of justice, and two, the quality of being just, impartial, or fair questioned the justice of their decision. Uh, sorry, example, questioned the justice of their decision. Or B, the particular idea of just dealing or right action. Pretty good, but it's using justice to define itself again. I don't really like that, so I went even farther. Justice is like a, this legal term, so I went to an online law dictionary. Uh, I think you pronounce that DeHames Law Dictionary. Are there any pre-law people here that can help me out? Nobody. Okay, we're, all, we're just going to go with DeHames. So we see in the legal sense, it is a noun, a, sen a state of affairs in which conduct or action is both fair and right given the circumstances. So they're all pretty much saying the same thing, that justice is fairness under the law. But again, I was still confused. And so I wanted to look at what does UF think justice is? Yeah, that's right. Florida has scheduled LSU as the homecoming game this year. It has also reported that they will be honoring the national championship baseball team at halftime. And if you watch the national championship baseball, we beat LSU twice in a row. It was glorious. And we have Coach Mack saying, deal with it. That's, that's my definition of justice. <laughs> um, what does the world say that justice is, though? What, is, what does the Bible say that justice is? Well, according to Scripture, we see that justice flows from the character of God. Justice is, by nature, God. Whatever He does is just. The law itself in the Old Testament flowed from the character of God. So, <clears throat> um, we, we have this sense that the pursuit of righteousness according to Scripture is justice according to law, according to, to the Bible, according to the Word of God. But even in our time, we can see 
where the people of God is, is visible and active in the world, that there is so much injustice that happens all over the world. Uh, it doesn't even take very, very much to look at it and to see it. Okay? You can see it in your classes. You can see it in your jobs. You can see it on the news if you choose to watch the news. You can, see, you can hear it on the radio if you choose to listen to the radio. It's everywhere. This, these things that happen that, that just aren't right. And, uh, and, and there's this observable phenomenon that we can see uh, that, that happens from time to time. It's been going on so long that we've got all of these sayings about it. Now see if you can help me out finish the sayings, okay? What goes around comes around. Uh, they'll get theirs one day. I don't know. This, that one's not as common. Okay, this, one, this one's from the Bible. Um, you reap or you sow. Now, what is that talking about? It's talking about when, when, you, when you sow bad things, you reap bad things in return. When you sow good things, you reap good things in, the, in return. Now, the Eastern religions call this, call this phenomenon, thank you, one person. Anybody else? Thank you, Mario. Anybody else know what it's called? Karma. Yes, we all know what it's called. I'm preaching about karma. Yeah, that's happening. No. Um, car- <laughs> There's a lot of things that are wrong with the idea of karma. Uh, one thing in particular is that it's not true all the time. Because we can see, and we've all known people who are good, godly people, and bad things happen to them. And they keep having bad situations happen. And the world keeps beating them down. And they're good, godly people. They're, they've done nothing to deserve that kind of thing according to the idea of karma. And then on the flip side, we also see that there are these really unrighteous dirtbags who good things happen to them. And nothing bad ever happens to them. Anybody, my, my wife's favorite Christmas movie is, uh, it's... Oh, come on, babe. Help me out. It fled my brain. I didn't plan on saying this. I didn't plan on saying this, so I don't have it written down. It's what a wonderful life, right? It's a wonderful life. I still got it wrong. Okay. What? Okay. So there's this rich old miser. Does anything bad ever happen to the rich old miser? No, not even in the end of the movie. They just collect a bunch of money and we're able to, to keep the thing anyway. So nothing bad ever happens to this guy. And, and we can see that happening in the world. We can also see examples of that happening in Scripture. Probably the most profound example and the most common that people know of is this guy named Job. Has anybody ever heard the story of Job? Okay, has anybody not heard the story of Job? Even better. Mario, come on, man. Okay, um, so Job is this guy, he's this upright guy, he's a righteous man, and God, uh, Satan comes before God and is trying to tempt Job and to tempt Job away from, from worshiping God, and so all of these bad things happen to Job. He loses all of his possessions, all of his kids die, he gets boils and, and lesions on his skin, and the only thing he's left with is his wife who's complaining constantly. 
and telling him to just give up and die. Isn't that, isn't that some encouraging words from your spouse? Um, so, Job didn't do anything to deserve that. Nothing in his life pointed towards that direction. Okay? And then we've got a bunch of examples in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 summarizes the hall of faith. These, these heroes of our faith throughout the generations, specifically in the Old Testament, who bad things were just happening to them, even though they were good people. Okay, so Hebrews 11, 32 through 38. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, and that they might arise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in half, they were killed with the sword. They, were, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in the dens of caves of the earth. Does that sound like karma to you? These upright, righteous people, these prophets, these judges who enforced justice and preached the word of God and lived moral lives according to the law of God, and they were stoned, they were beaten, they were beheaded, they were sawn in half, they were boiled in oil. That's not karma. In the New Testament, we have Stephen. No, sorry, I have a V. Um, Stephen was the first martyr. All he did was serve uh, food to widows and orphans and preach the word of God. And they killed him for it. Now, if anything is going to give you good karma, it's going to be giving food to widows and orphans. But no, they martyred him for it. If you go a little bit farther, we look at the, the apostles. All of the apostles except for one were martyred. Paul and Peter were both crucified. Paul, before he was crucified, was stoned, beaten. Uh, I don't remember what else happened to him. But they were crucified. Some of them were, were uh, beheaded. Uh, one of them was boiled in oil. One of them was sawn in half. And John was the only one who escaped, and he got exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, these were godly people, and they were not rewarded for their godliness on a, in a temporal sense, in the sense of the world. So if this isn't karma, what is it? It's the justice of God. Not the bad things happening to good people specifically, but the good thi or bad things happening to bad people. The, you reap what you sow. And uh, I call that the judgment of Almighty, times, of Almighty God, and, and sometimes I call it God's sense of humor. So, I've, anybody ever read The Far Side? 
Yes, one, awesome. Two, justice. Enjoy that for a second. Okay, God has, has a sense of humor sometimes. Um, and, uh, and, and also it's this idea of his divine judgment. Um, so now we're going to go move into Habakkuk, and we're going to look at what happens when justice is prolonged and, and, and the faith that we need. Let's do a quick review. Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophet Habakkuk observed all of these terrible things that were going on in the nation of Israel uh, and, and all of this injustice that was happening. And so he, he complained to God about it. He prayed to God, and he asked God, when are you going to do something about this? And God answered him. He said, just be patient because I'm raising up this nation in the east, the Babylonians, who are going to come, and I'm going to use them as an instrument to punish the nation of Israel for their wickedness. Habakkuk is pretty disturbed by this. If you know anything about the Babylonians, you can understand why. Now, Israel, or Judah rather, was doing some pretty terrible things at this point in their history. They were worshiping foreign idols. Uh, they were perverting justice for widows and for orphans. They were sacrificing their children to, on idols. Like, they were, they were using their children as burnt sacrifices to idols. They were practicing cult prostitution. Not good things. But the Babylonians were 10 times worse. They did all of those things and more. Basically, the Babylonian Empire was wrath made flesh. They were brutal in their conquests. And what they would do is they were devouring all of these nations around them and conquering them. And when they conquered them, they essentially committed genocide against the people. They killed a vast number of them, and everybody they didn't kill, they took as slaves to come and work in their empire. And they left a bare remnant behind. And they were indiscriminate in this slaughter. They killed women and children, too, not just the men. They killed everyone. They killed the livestock. They burned down the raw materials, and they stole the raw materials from whatever region they were in and used it to build their empire. So, naturally, Habakkuk did not like this answer, that God is going to use this terrible people to come and punish the nation of Israel. And so, he did what is horribly ill-advised. He told God he didn't like it and that he was going to wait until God changed his mind. Not a good idea. We looked earlier at the, at the life of Job, and when Job did this, it did not turn out well for him. In Job chapter 38, it tells the story of when God answered Job when Job was complaining to God, and God essentially said, man up, it's time to put your big boy pants on, because I'm going to show you the truth. And God asked him all of these questions, of, where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I created the stars? Where were you when I created all the creatures and the animals and the earth? Where were you, Job? That's right, you weren't around. And God put him in his place. But graciously, for whatever reason, God did not do that with the, with the prophet Habakkuk. What he did do is he answered him. 
And when he answered him, uh, he, he tells Habakkuk that this idea of justice, God is, is, is just, okay? And so, yes, he's going to use the nation of Babylon to punish the nation of Israel. But the nation of Babylon is not going to escape from their wickedness. And he proclaims to Habakkuk these five woe oracles. Now, an oracle is what we would traditionally think of as prophecy. It's, it's, a, it's a telling of the future, of what's going to happen in the future. This can happen in the near future, or the far future, or the very far future, uh, but it's going to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. And they're called woe oracles. Now, the word woe is not typically a word that we use in English anymore, unless you're like a surfer culture from the 90s, or, or crush from Finding Nemo. You know, th- it's not the same word though. It's not like, whoa, because that's like amazement. That's, that's describing something that's incredible, something that's great and wonderful. Whoa. And we sometimes will use that. But this kind of woe is describing anguish and bitterness. This is the kind of woe that you know if you've lost someone. This is the kind of woe that that you know when you've lost everything that you have and you have nothing left and you're in despair. Uh, A a kind of a way to translate it into a way that we would understand is this would be weeping bitterly. It's, It's an English term, this is an onomatopoeia, it's, it's a, you know, word that sounds like the sound that it makes, I guess. Is that, that's right? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, <clears throat> but it means just to cry and weep bitterly, okay? And God declares these five things that the nation of Babylon is going to weep bitterly over, and why. So let's look at the text, and we'll walk through it. Starting in verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who, who will make you tremble? When they will, then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations and the remnant of the people will plunder you. The blood of man, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So what's going to happen here to the, to the nation of Babylon is they're going to be caused to weep bitterly for the plunder that they have caused, for, for stealing what is not their own from the nations that they conquered. So when they, when they plundered these people, when they conquered them, they didn't just take a few things here and there. They took everything. They took the raw materials. They took the trees. They took the stone. They took all the gold, all the silver. They took everything. They took slaves from the people that they conquered. And so they're going to be made to weep over this because they're building their cities with the raw materials that they're stealing from these other nations. 
They're going to be made to tremble. And the remnant of these people, the bare remnant that is left behind, are going to rise up and conquer this mighty nation. The second one, in verse 9, 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stones will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Okay? The second thing that they're going to weep bitterly over is for devising evil gain for their house to keep themselves safe from harm. Now, keeping yourself safe from harm, nothing wrong with that. That is practical wisdom and a good idea. If you know that there's a place where you're going to get hurt, don't go there. Keep yourself safe from harm. There's nothing wrong with that. But what the Babylonians did is they were trying to keep themselves safe from harm by creating this barrier between them and another empire called Assyria. Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel uh, about 120 years before this happened. About 100, so there's about 120 years between when uh, the, the Assyrians conquered Israel and when the Babylonians conquered Judah. And what's going on in this time period is Assyria had risen and it was the superpower of its day. And then as it began to decline, Babylon began to conquer other cities and conquer other regions around it to keep themselves safe from Assyria. But they didn't stop there. And, and in fact, doing that is what they're going to be punished for. But they didn't stop with just creating this barrier between them and Assyria. They cut off the other people. They killed them. They slaughtered them and they took their possessions. And the stones from their walls and the timbers from their beams are going to be testimony against them. That's what I mentioned just a minute ago where they plundered the very buildings from the cities that they conquered. They took the stones and the timbers to build up their own cities. And that is going to be a testimony against them. Now the third woe is uh, found in verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town on blood, who founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Now, this oracle comes with a prophecy at the end. But they're going to be made to weep bitterly for building their cities with blood. And what that means is using the slaves from the conquered peoples to build their cities, to build up their empire, to be the working population. And they're going to be punished for that. They're going to be punished for the injustice that they have done to these people. And it says... Behold, uh, is it not from the Lord that nations weary for fire? And the nations weary themselves for nothing. Now, what does that mean? That means 
that all of the great works that the Babylonians built, all of their monuments, all of their cities, all of their, their treasures, and the mighty empire that they created is going to be dust and ash in the end. Outside of evangelical Christianity and Judaism, maybe, and, this, and the scholars, who knows who Babylon was and what they did? No one. Who knows what their monuments were? No one. Who's ever seen a statue that the Babylonians made? No one. It's all turned to ash and turned to dust. Okay? All we've got is just a couple cuneiform tablets and the information that we've got in the Bible. That's it. Everything else we know about the Babylonians comes from other people's writing about them. Everything that they did, all of the monuments that they built were torn down. All of their cities destroyed, and we have nothing left of them. They've wearied themselves for nothing. And by contrast, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So in the ancient times, a contest between two countries was not just a contest between two countries. It was one God fighting against another God. That's how they viewed it. And so what did the Babylonians naturally think when they conquered Judah and Israel? My God's bigger than your God. My God's better than your God because your God couldn't, couldn't stand up when we came to fight. Your God couldn't give you strength when you came to fight. But God says that knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as waters cover the sea. And what has happened? Did, did the God of Israel stay a little regional God? No. Where is the God of Israel now. Who knows about the God of Israel? People in every country on earth are Christians. There are Christians in every place. Now, not everyone has known about him yet. So this prophecy does have a future implication that in the future, it's going to be total. Think about that. As waters cover the sea or as waters cover the, the, the ocean bed, okay, what percentage of the ocean bed is covered by water? All of it. It's total. And so one day we will see that this prophecy will truly be fulfilled. One day, the New Testament says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's, it's going to be a total knowledge of his glory. Now it's a partial knowledge of his glory covering the whole earth. But in future, it'll be total. Now the fourth woe oracle is a little bit confusing. At least I thought it was confusing. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. In order to gaze on their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as, the, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence done to the earth, 
to cities and all who dwell in them. So I don't think we're literally talking about wine here. Just an observation. Because he's not talking about getting drunk on wine, he's talking about getting drunk on wrath. So wine in this sense, in this particular passage, is an illustration. And when wine is used poetically, it means passion. Okay, so they're going to pour out their passion on other peoples and make them drunk on their wrath. So wrath is, essentially it's the verb form of hate. Okay, the verb form of hate. So they are passionate about their hatred for other peoples. And they pour out their passion on them. Okay, and it says, in order to gaze on their nakedness. Okay, now, obviously, they're, they're looking for something nefarious here. They're not trying to do something good with this passionate wrath. Okay, they're trying to uncover the shame of other peoples and bring them low and make themselves greater. And it says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand, and it will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. So the image here is of God, not Babylon, passing around this cup of shame to other countries. And the cup of shame is going to be passed around to Israel before it's going to be poured out on Babylon. But Babylon's turn is coming, and God's hand is going to pour the cup for them the cup of wrath and the cup of shame. And all this glory that they've built up around them, all of these cities, all of these monuments are going to be turned to shame. Now, the third or the fifth oracle is in verse 19, 18 and 19. And it doesn't start off the same. It doesn't start off with the oracle. It starts off talking about idols. He says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlain with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. And then verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. So again, like the third oracle, we have this contrast. We have the gods of the Babylonians that are made of wood and stone and metal. Okay? These gods can't talk. And the guy who created them knows that he created them. How foolish is it to make something out of clay and then pretend like it's greater than you? when you're the one who created it. And so the contrast is between that image of an idol and God. This here, verse 20, is the linchpin of the text. This is the point. This is what everything is driven to. A lot of times we'll see that, that the linchpin is in the middle of the text 
But here, specifically, it's at the end. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. So all of the destruction that God is going to rain down on Judah and the destruction in turn that he's going to rain down on Babylon, God's in control. That's the point of all of this. The main point of this text is telling, is God telling Habakkuk and in turn the nation of Judah, trust in God's justice because God sits on the throne. God sits on the throne room of the temple. Okay, he is sovereign over it all. He's creator of it all. And he is the reason that all things come to be. Now, how can we apply that in 21st century America? Okay. We can trust in God's justice over our circumstances because he sits on the throne of your life. He's, he is in the temple of your life. Okay. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul tells us a little bit more about this, very specifically. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. The point that Paul is trying to make here is slightly different, but the theological truth of this verse remains. Our bodies, our very bodies are the temple of God that his spirit resides within. Now, has anybody ever heard Jesus is, is in your heart? Yes? Okay. I do not have a grown man living inside of me. That has, uh, that has bothered me for, for a little bit. Uh, that, that, and it's an oversimplification, but it also cheapens the Holy Spirit. In, in, in uh, Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, and he says, it's better that I go away so that the paraclete, the helper, the one who I'm going to send you can live within you because you're going to do greater works through the Holy Spirit than I ever did here. And that's saying a lot because Jesus healed the blind, healed the deaf, raised the dead, he says that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be able to do greater things than that. Okay, we, we have another passage in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 that talks about us being a temple, okay? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, and God said, as God said, I will make you my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. God is indwelt within us through the power of the Holy Spirit. His Spirit is upon us, and we are able to do mighty works in Him and in His grace. Now, something else that this passage says is that, that we are the, now the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 Peter talks about this. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim an ex uh, an, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
So Peter says, because we have the Spirit and we are now his people, we can extol the majesty of God. We can talk to people about the excellency of God, about who he is, the glory of what he has done for us, how he called us out of darkness and into light. Okay? We're a royal priesthood. Now, this is something that we call the priesthood of all believers. Okay, who knows what a priest is? Who doesn't know what a priest is? I'm going to tell you anyway. A priest is someone who comes before God and intercedes between God and the people. A priest is one who makes sacrifices on behalf of the people and ministers to them. But here, Peter tells us, we are all priests. Every believer is a priest. Every person who has the Holy Spirit of God within them is a priest to God. You are a priest before the people who are not believing in him. You are someone who can intercede between God and man. Now, not for the sins, that's Jesus. But you can tell people about him. You can tell people what he has done for you and how he brought you from darkness into light. Something else that uh, jumps out to me about verse 20 in Habakkuk is that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth keep silent before him. Does that ring any bells for anyone over the Psalms? There's a particular fa particularly famous psalm that is connected here. Now, the psalm that, that is connected was written a couple hundred years before Habakkuk's day. Habakkuk probably had heard the psalm. And so whether Habakkuk knew or not, God wrote both of them. God inspired both of them. So Psalm 46 is this psalm, okay? And it's amazing here, the contrast. So we're talking about the justice of God and what God's doing and these tough times, these, these tough situations that are coming. And then we have Psalm 46, this connection here. It says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea, though its waters roar from and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still 
and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's no surprise that these two verses are connected. This idea that God's justice is coming and these terrible circumstances are going to happen. But God is our fortress. God is our strength. And we can be silent and still and know that he is God, that he is on the throne, that he is in the temple, and that he is our God. When troubles come upon us, we need to remember this. When persecutions happen to us, or even stress and worry, we need to remember this. James uh, 1, verse 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's he saying? Now, a lot of times in the New Testament we hear and we see you are blessed when you're persecuted because of the name of Jesus. You are blessed when you're persecuted because of, uh, of the name of God and of preaching the word of God. But here, James says, count it all joy when you meet troubles of various kinds. Of anything, any kind of trouble. Count it joy when you meet that trouble because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking for nothing. All of these trials, these worries that we have, who's worried in the past month? Who's worried about something? Everybody. Awesome. I was hoping that would happen. Who's worried about something in the last week? Who's worried about something last night? Who worried about something this morning? It's so common that we worry about these things. We worry about tests. We worry about assignments. We worry about work and projects at work and performance. We worry about bills. We worry about payment, car payments, and, and, and all of these situations, all of these troubles that we worry about. James says, blessed because of them. Count it as your joy because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So when trials come upon you, when worries come upon you, God is on the temple. I've got this assignment that's due, and, and I, I've been working on it diligently, but I've still not got it done, and it's due tomorrow. And God's in control. He'll see me through. I've got this bill to pay, and if I, and if I don't pay this bill, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. If I don't pay this bill, I'm going to lose my car, and if I lose my car, I won't be able to get to work, and I'll lose my job, and if I don't have a job, I won't be able to pay for my house, so I'll lose my house. God's in control. God's on the throne. God's in his temple. No matter what, God will take care of me. 
Okay, look, you remember the hall of faith we just looked at in Hebrews? Okay, the last, uh, the last thing it said about these people, it said, um, the, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They didn't have houses. And these people were homeless sometimes. God, if that's what you want, I'll go and be a missionary somewhere. It's okay, you're going to take care of me. Man, I got this test, this final exam for a class. And if I don't pass this exam, I'm going to fail the class. And if I fail the class, I'll fail the program. and I'll get kicked out of school. And then I won't be able to do what I think God has called me to do. Rest. It's okay. Because if God really wants me to do that, follow that track, follow that career path, he'll see me through. God's in his temple. God's on his throne. And I can rest. This, this constant fighting against our worry. Now, this isn't a cure for worry. What I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we won't have to worry anymore. What I am saying is that when these worries and these trials and these stresses come upon you, this is the way out. This is the gospel. This is the way to freedom. Trust in God. Trust in His justice. Trust in His mercy. Trust that He is in control, that He is sovereign, that He is on His throne. And have faith. Now, you might be here worrying, looking, looking at me and going, and all this Jesus stuff, I, I don't know if it's true. I've got doubts. Well, that's great. I've got doubts too. That's fine. Because there are answers. And if you have doubts, come and talk to me about it. Come and talk to Brian about it or, or Derek or Kevin or one of the elders. We'd love to talk these, these issues through with you. We would love to process this through with you and to help you find those answers. And if you're here and you, and you are a Christian, you hear what I'm saying, then you can trust and put your faith in God. And I want you to reflect on that as we move into our time where we're gonna take communion. I want you to reflect on God's power and him on his throne and his control over our life and over our circumstances. That now, no matter what, he's got us. No matter what, his plan for us will be made complete. No matter what, he will take care of us because he is on his throne. He is in control of our circumstances and his justice will see us through. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your gospel. God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your son to us to die for us so that we can be made perfect in him, so that we can have freedom from our sins and from the judgment that's coming, God. Thank you so much. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us in our lives and for the trials that are coming because we know that those trials you're gonna see us through. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for everything. Amen.